This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Interesting meeting uh, from the Hampton Police Services Board. As we told you uh, earlier this week when the, D- the chief was here, uh, Chief Ergert was with us here for the Chief's Town Hall earlier in the week, and uh, he talked about one of the items on the agenda, and that was uh, the acquisition of carbine rifles for police officers. And uh, it's somewhat contentious, and, and it was uh, well vetted around yesterday, and uh, the Police Services Board decided to go ahead with this. And uh, there's been some pushback on this, if you look at some of the comments on social media. Lloyd Ferguson, of course, is uh, the Ancaster City Councilor and also the Chairman of the Police Services Board. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to bring us up to speed on this. Lloyd, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Well, thanks for having me on again, Bill. Well, listen, before we get into this issue, uh, I, I wanted to give you a chance to, to comment about the, the discussion I had yesterday with Todd White from the Hamilton Board of Education uh, very briefly. And that had to do, of course, with that uh, what they think may well be surplus land by Ancaster High School. Uh, that has an awful lot of people upset. Uh, we tried to reach out to you yesterday. You were tied up, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to weigh in on it right now, if you could. Well, uh, opportunity to weigh in or vent. Well, uh, you can do either one. Yeah, I, I was, I'm terribly disappointed in this. It was, uh, um, I was tipped off by Todd um, late last week, either Thursday or Friday, that the board was considering this. And then when he did his presentation to council, on Tuesday, I asked him, is, is this still out there? And he says, yes, well, it was uh, a decision at the board meeting the night before on, on Monday night uh, to proceed with the severance of 11 acres from Ancaster High School. And that campus has a 40-acre piece of property, and um, and they, they're going to sever 11 acres off, which will take out a commission on approximately eight soccer fields. And, uh, of course, we've been, this is deja vu all over again. It's like Groundhog Day. Uh, about five years ago, there was a combination review, and a lot of your listeners will be familiar with the combination reviews. And Ancaster High was on the hit list, and mm-hmm. uh, so I was on that committee along with a number of citizens, where the board presented their dilemma to us that uh, enrollment was falling and it's going to continue to collapse, and and it's expected that uh, enrollment over the uh, next few years, probably about now, would be down to 600 students. And one of the considerations they had was to um, close that school and, and sell the whole thing uh, and build a super school over in the Meadowlands on a much smaller piece of property. And, and of course, there's big pushback on that. And uh, But, you know, you fast forward to today, and they horribly misfired and got the community all upset and over uh, this accommodation review because enrollment's gone the other way. Uh, last time I checked, there was 1,300 students there. And 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 so they, they completely uh, misread the demographics and the growth in Ancaster and what that would mean to enrollment to Ancaster High School. Well, here we go again. Uh, you know, they talked that time about maybe putting an elementary school site there, but the big thing was to sell off a piece of property, but they got so much pushback. And quite frankly, I think they're embarrassed about their forecast that they, they, they got pushed aside. Well, it's back again. And the motion on Monday night at the um, school board was to sell off the most southerly 11 acres. Um, it's hard to visualize this, but they would Well, the way I described it yesterday was it's, if people that know that area, and I think a lot of people probably do, uh, it's, it's the big tract of land right behind the aquatic center. Well, yeah, right behind the school. The aquatic center is on the west side of the property, and, and, but it's a southern piece of property, about, uh, about 25% of the property is what they, they want to declare surplus. And, of course, they're looking, to, they're just saying, well, we'd love if the, the city bought it, then you could keep it as green space. But they went on to say that uh, if we do sell it to you, it's highest and best uh, use, which is development, which is generally residential development, which is generally townhouses. 
and and that kind of property in Ancaster right now is selling for around one to one point two million dollars per acre. That's eleven acres. That's somewhere between eleven and fifteen million dollars that they expect the city to buy just to retain it. And of course, it'd be a perfect world for them. They still get to use the property because it's a park owned by the city, but they, they extract uh, you know the millions of dollars from the city of Hamilton for something that the taxpayers have already paid for. But the problem with this, Lloyd. And again, I do want to get to the other issue, but I think we need to, to vet this. Is this is not their rule? This is the provincial government that set this rule up. I mean, they're allowing them to do it. Oh yeah, the, the, the Education Act has right in it that whenever there's a surplus school site, it automatically reverts to highest and best use to extract as much money as they can. And, but and this, this is the poster child example of where they're trying to download the cost of education to the local taxpayer, and so they extract say eleven million dollars from us. And, uh, and and use it to fund education. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I, the part that frustrates me the most is that our forefathers had a vision. And God bless them because they had common sense. They said, you know what, when we buy this property, this is the old town of Ancaster and the old Ancaster High School Board, we should have buy enough property so that there's enough recreation there and enough space so the school can use that property during the day and the community weekends and evening. I mean, how practical is that? And it's worked amazingly. And so it's an integral part of our community. There's a total of 11 soccer fields on this property. We also, the town of Ancaster, before amalgamation, built the Ancaster Aquatic Center, which the high school has full use to. The, uh, the community fundraised significantly to put the auditorium on that, which is used mostly by the school now. And it's too bad, so sad, and it's ours. And, and so I'm taking serious issue with us. I'm going to use every tool um, <clears throat> excuse me, available to me to stop it. And, and uh, so I'm setting up a meeting with our director of planning and our general manager of planning and economic development to use the Municipal Act if I can. And two things I'm considering is just simply block the severance. Deny it. And, and so i got to um, see whether or not we can do that under the Planning Act. I suspect we can, but i got to confirm that. Or the second piece is learn from Oakville. In Oakville, uh, the developer wanted to make a quick buck also and sell Glen Abbey. And so the town of Oakville declared it a heritage site. And so this is, there's a lot of history to this property at the Ancaster School. In, they had the vision to buy enough property, turn it into a real community asset, in addition to being a very large school with some 1,300 students going there. And, and that's quite a legacy, the, the, our leaders that they had. I know my father was chair of the high school board shortly after it opened. He was on the board when they bought the property, and that was their vision to work with the town of Ancaster to jointly buy this property. And, and so they got it right. And so what right does the school board have to screw that up now by taking the profit, by selling this property, and doing something else with it? It's steal from Ancaster. You know, they argued that... Uh, when Todd did his presentation, well, it's the biggest campus in the in the um, the whole city. Yeah, and that's not by accident. So now they they want us to buy it and and keep it is so they can still keep using it, but take our money. Well, and they realize the problem. I, and I, and again, I go back to the province because this is not the first time somebody's brought this up. Is we the taxpayers already paid for that land way way back when, as you just said. I, we didn't. We know there's no damn way we should be paying for it again just because they are, it's going to change hands. It's still taxpayer money. Well, not only that, Bill, but this is not a school closure. The others have all been closures. Yeah. This is just t- lopping off a piece of it to grab some cash. 
at, at the local taxpayer's expense. Well, you're going to have that meeting, and, and hopefully you can develop a strategy, and, and we'll talk about that uh, after you do that with the planning staff. But let's get into the meeting from last night, the, okay. the Police Services Board meeting. Uh, controversial issue about uh, about purchasing carbine rifles. Talk to us about that. Well, I'm not sure it's so controversial. I, you know, I don't follow Twitter, uh, but um, it may be out there. But it just makes so much sense. You see across North America the um, active shooters problems now. And, um, you know, the sidearm that every officer carries on his belt has a limited distance where they can shoot that with accuracy. It's a very short distance. The shotgun that they carry in their vehicles is the same. Uh, You know, they spread out, but they have a very uh, uh, short distance, something in the order of 10 to 12 feet where they can accurately shoot it. Uh, These carbines, these C8 carbines, um, can shoot up to 600 meters. And so... um, an officer can stand back and keep the public back and take out a shooter if they're, um, you know, like you saw in Las Vegas where somebody sits in the in a hotel room and starts to shower down on top of a crowd. And so we bought enough of these weapons. Uh, our um, tactical unit, you know, the public calls in the SWAT team, the tactical unit already carries these, but they can't respond as quick as someone who is um, actively on patrol. So every squad will have one of these rifles in their in their vehicle. So we'll have about 48 officers trained on how to use them, and uh, they can shoot with accuracy up to 600 meters away, which can take out an active shooter. So it's just another piece of equipment that the um, the service is putting in place. We're the last of the Big 12 um, services across the province of Ontario to uh, arm our officers with these. So they're not going into every cruiser. They're not going into an entry-level police officer. They're going into a person who's got adequate training and be readily available to respond because they'll already be on the road doing patrol but have this weapon in their trunk. Uh, Now, the total cost is about $95,000. We got the report on on the year-end results for the police service. There was some $600,000 in surplus last year, so a good chunk of that's going into reserves for future uh, uses or to bring taxes down, but $95,000 will be used to buy these uh, carbide or CA um, long gun rifles. Are you comfortable with the description some people are using that these are military-style weapons? Yeah. Yeah, I am. I, I, listen, I think that uh, we need to arm our officers with the best tools that we can. Uh, we're seeing, you know, look at the three officers that were gunned down in... Um, in Moncton, yeah, and they didn't have these rifles to be able to defend themselves. They had to try to get up close. We saw the same thing in Edmonton, where officers lost their lives because somebody else had one of these rifles. So they're available to the bad guys, and so it's critical that we they're also available to the guys trying to ensure public safety. Now, how far down the road have you got with the planning on this? You mentioned these these officers are going to be trained in the use of this. Uh, but uh, but not everybody's going to have one. How do you select who does and who doesn't have these? It'd be the, it'd be an experienced officer who's got a number of years of experience and has had adequate training on um, on using these facilities, and and it's important that one, every squad, and so about four or five officers at any one time, twenty four hours a day, <clears throat> will have one of these these units in their car with them. And uh, they'll be locked down inside the vehicle. They're not going to be away in the trunk where it's hard to get to. They'll be locked down inside the car, and uh, they'll be able to get at them quickly if there's an emergency. 
Now, there was some discussion yesterday, as I understand it, at the the Police Services Board uh, about this tactic, which may be necessary, as you mentioned, in some cases. Uh, But on the other hand, you've talked a great deal over the last couple of months about de-escalation in crisis situations like this. Uh, How do you you mesh those two together? Well, de-escalation is always the first line of defense. It's what we always want our officers to do. And these officers who will carry these weapons are going to get uh, enhanced training on de-escalation because that's the first thing you want to do. But if you've got um, someone in a building somewhere that's picking off pedestrians or picking off members of the public uh, for whatever reason, and, you know, you, 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 you look through, you know, the situation like Madame Bay or some of these schools, um, you know, generally there's mental health involved, but you have a duty to, uh, to safely protect those people who are on the ground. Uh, Clearly, the first thing to do is get inside the wherever they are and um, do the de-escalation. But if that won't work, you can't allow the public to be at risk. Uh, one email I got earlier this morning about this very topic uh, suggested that why do this in Hamilton? This whole idea of active shooters, it doesn't happen here. I think, and, and uh, I, I, your comment on that, but I mean, my immediate reaction to the email uh, was that, look, it's naive to suggest it could never happen here. Absolutely. Who'd ever think a, a gang of hooligans would, and hoods would march down Lock Street? You ha- the police have to be prepared for every eventuality that could happen. And we're seeing a spike of these active shooters throughout North America right now. And, and you know, why in Hamilton? Well, we're the last to get them, quite frankly. Every other major police force in the province has them. How long has this been on, on the, the radar for the, for the police on, in situations like this? Because uh, I, I know that the this is this has moved along in some people's minds pretty quickly, but obviously this would take a little bit of time to get research done and and and, and make some determination as to who it's going to be with and and what kind of weapons you're going to get. So this is this is not a new story, I would think. Not at all. The chiefs have been after me as chair of the board to uh, put these in the budget for a while, and of course we had other demands, particularly the investigative services building that we spent 11 years trying to get that approved, and so that was our first focus. But because we had this surplus this year, we're able to go out and fund it and, and uh, give our, our frontline officers the tools they need to do their job. Lloyd Ferguson, uh, the chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board. Lloyd, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Anytime, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Great piece of the Toronto Star today. Andrew Shear shows staying power, even if voters don't yet know him. Tim Harper, of course, is a freelance writer and editor, and uh, he wrote the piece, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. How are you doing this morning, Tim? Good morning, Bill. How are you? Great. Great to have you with us here today. Uh, Shear is an interesting guy, uh, and uh, the piece, uh, I think, really points this out, that he's on, been on the job a little more than a year. Uh, th- there's never going to be any Shearomania, is there? But, I mean, he, he, is it steady as she goes? Is, is that the way you look at that, what he's done so far? Well, he certainly protected... Uh the uh, voter support that he inherited, uh, if you look at the numbers from the last election, he's uh, he's got the conservative base. Uh, he may have built a point or two on that uh, uh, based on whatever poll you want to look at now. But um, the, the interesting thing about Andrew Scheer is, uh, while he's not well-known, which is not unusual for opposition leaders, newly minted opposition leaders between elections, um, those who uh, have observed him um, there's nothing about him that is, is that is really unlikable. He's not a polarizing figure like Stephen Harper was, and the Liberals have been, I think, unsuccessful in trying to paint him as Stephen Harper with a smile as they as they've been trying over the spring session. Um, 
because he he just he seems like a very affable guy. He looks like uh, you know your neighbor uh, firing up the grill and putting a, a couple of burgers on uh, with you know with the apron and the spatula. Well, which led to those commercials that they ran a few months yeah. ago, which I thought maybe went a little bit too far to that direction. I mean, I you know I thought I was watching the beginning of Leave It to Beaver. Uh, and, you know, to go back to those days, you know, it was, uh, but and maybe that was too much of a characterization, but, uh, but you're right. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's hard not to, to say, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with the guy. I mean, you know, he's, he's not outlandish. I mean, there are some people in the caucus and some people in, in, uh, in Parliament Hill that can be a little obnoxious during question period. He's forthright, uh, but he doesn't seem to, to, to go over that line that some other people have done. He's got a good sense of humor too, which yeah. I think uh, helps, and he shows that uh, from time to time. You know, but it's it, here's the question. You know, uh, he's an affable guy. Uh, there's nothing I don't like about him. You, you, you kind of shrug your shoulders when you say that. I, I'm not. I'm not sure of the fact that hey, I don't just like this guy's enough to get elected as prime minister. I, I, uh, I, I frankly, Bill, been a little surprised at his uh, polling numbers staying consistent. Uh, he's essentially even with the Trudeau liberals and we're uh, you know when the house comes back in September we're basically into a year-long unofficial election campaign so he he has shown staying power but um, I, I'm not quite sure how to read the polls I don't know whether this is uh, um, discontent with uh, Justin Trudeau uh, uh, building some of the support for sheer that voters are parking there um, you know we're gonna find out uh, uh, you know, as you mentioned off the top, and, uh, and uh, as I wrote, Canadians don't know them. Yeah. Uh, when they get to know them, we'll, we'll see if we uh, if they like them. But you, you can look at polling data now, and you still see four out of ten respondents saying, uh, "I don't know enough about the guy to tell you whether he's doing a good job or a bad job." So, uh, you know, there, there's a there's a huge gray area there that uh, uh, an empty canvas that still has to be sketched. But when you look at those numbers, and, and I agree with you, it's it's very difficult to read anything into them because there's uh, there's some solid numbers there, but you know they are creeping up. At one point, I guess through the course of uh, the early spring, uh, the the PC the Conservatives rather were actually ahead of the Liberals at one point. But do, do those incidents where that happened, Tim, uh, not coincide very closely with uh, Trudeau's Agra Khan trip and then the trip to India, uh, where an, uh, there was an awful lot of talk about Mr. Trudeau at that time, and and it was just okay anybody but Trudeau at that point, and they're just that's when the numbers started to sag. Yeah, I don't know if anybody outside the Ottawa bubble notices, but the the, the Conservatives uh, did a very good job of keeping the India trip um, uh, bubbling and keeping it, uh, at least in, they may not get credit for what they're doing in the question period, but during that period, uh, post-India uh, trip, they did do a very good job of keeping that uh, in the news cycle. So yeah, you're absolutely right. The the, the, the polling data indicates that it, it's being driven up or down for sheer based on um, what Trudeau's doing. Uh, the Prime Minister just got a, a recently a, a bump um, after uh, the dust-up with uh, Donald Trump at the G7. Um, it'll come back down. Uh, that's, it's not sustainable. That was looks like a, a quick burst. Um, Shear did gain traction during the, uh, the uh, in, after the India trip, and you're quite right, after the uh, conflict uh, report on the Aga Khan uh, holiday. So, yeah, he's basically benefiting uh, from um, liberal missteps, Tudo missteps. But you know that's that's what you do when you're an opposition leader, and and, and when you're handed that opportunity, the question is how do you uh, how do you exploit it or how do you uh, sustain it? And 
I would argue that he's done a very good job of exploiting and sustaining when, when, when he is handed um, uh, an advantage because of something that the Prime Minister's done. One of the other elements that, again, maybe not so much outside the Ottawa bubble, but I think we do try to pay attention to is, is how he handles his own caucus, his own party. I mean, is this guy the leader and does he have the respect? Uh, and there were some concerns, if you recall, Tim, after the leadership race, uh, that, uh, well, you know, is this guy really just one of these radicals from out west uh, who's just with a smile on his face, or is he going to be a middle-of-the-road guy? Uh, but it seems as if, uh, I don't know if it's been systematic, but the the radicals, the ones who seem to be on the far right, uh, are no longer in caucus for the most part. I mean, Kelly Leach is all, all but gone. Uh, as you mentioned, Len Bayak, the, uh, the the senator who uh, was uh, concerned about some of the comments she made, out of the caucus right now, too. Is, is he doing a decent job of, of being the team leader? Uh, I think he is. I think he's actually exerted influence. I think he got off to a slow start on that. He was uh, slow off the mark, mark on um, Lynn Bayak, the, uh, the 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 senator who posted the uh, uh, the racist uh, comments regarding indigenous communities on on her website. Uh, he finally did act there. Uh, you and I talked after his uh, leadership victory, I believe, about a guy by the name of Brad Trost yeah. in uh, Saskatchewan, who's uh, 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 an ultra-right conservative who um, uh, uh, overperformed uh, given expectations in the leadership race, and would he cause uh, Andrew Shear any trouble? Well, Brad Trost lost his nomination battle in his riding. He's not running again. And uh, uh, you mentioned Kelly Leach, and the, of course the, the, the most high-profile one was Maxime Bernier. Well, let's talk uh, about that because that's sure. uh, that was that was bubbling under for the longest time, wasn't it? I mean, those are two guys that I don't care what what they look like on the podium when he won the leadership. These guys don't like each other. Bernier is the most uh, uh, dangerous um, uh, element in that caucus for uh, for sure. Uh, Maxime Bernier is still is very very popular in Quebec. Um, they but he's been a thorn in Sheer's side. He, he he published a book and, and released a, uh, a chapter on uh, uh, alleging that fake uh, conservatives uh, uh, came into Quebec and um, and uh, uh, helped Sheer win. Um, he, he didn't take that uh, chapter down off his personal website. Uh, it was sowing discontent within the caucus. Uh, Bernie is much more popular in Quebec than he is inside the caucus, I can tell you that. Uh, and Sheer finally just did move and stripped him of his um, shadow cabinet responsibilities, which really moves him down the pecking order in the, in the caucus. Um, and um, he did it uh, very firmly and very uh, authoritatively, and um, I think it was a good move. You know, voters don't notice the ins and outs and the caucus machinations unless you don't handle them properly and there's some kind of uh, a blow-up and your leadership's under stress or... or or there's a controversy. So he has managed um, to keep things in check. There have been no real caucus controversies uh, since he took the um, the leadership. And, and we can't forget how slim his plurality was, his majority was, uh, in, in winning that race. I mean, uh, it, you, it couldn't have gotten any closer between him and Bernier, which often uh, portends uh, problems coming down because you, you might have a divided caucus. But he's handled it. He's handled it well. And and obviously, if there was any concern about the way he uh, wrapped uh, Bernier's knuckles, if that might have an impact in Quebec, I mean, they won a by-election recently, so maybe not. That's right, um, and that that was significant. We uh, we often over uh, uh, analyze uh, by-elections, uh, you know, particularly in this case. I think the the turnout was in the uh, thirty 
mid 30% range. So, yeah, it was a very small sample size. But, yes, they took a, uh, Sheer took a seat back from the Liberals in Quebec, which is very significant, and, and it's highly significant now because uh, the NDP is uh, clearly uh, appears to be collapsing in Quebec, and the, the, the bloc is collapsing in Quebec. So, um, you know, you're not going to get those uh, four-way splits that you used to get that could, could skew some results there. Um, uh, the Conservatives believe that they're going to they're going to take back seats uh, uh, in Quebec in the uh, 19 election, and uh, you know that that by-election was a good start. It, 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 he actually replicated what Brian Mulroney had done by. Uh, um, Bringing in uh, Quebec nationalists into the conservative fold, so uh, that was that was Mulroney's uh, uh, formula for winning in Quebec, and Sheer is using it at least in a by-election, and we'll see how that unfolds in 2019. But it, it does look like conservatives could pose a threat uh, to the Liberals in Quebec next year. You, one of the most interesting pieces of the, of the, the stuff in the Star today that you wrote, uh, Tim, really intrigued me, and it's going forward into this election next year in 2019. And and any time an opposition party wants to knock off the 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 power the the government that's in power, they need an issue. And you suggest that it may just be carbon tax. Oh, I think. And, and if he does, he's got allies, doesn't he? He does. Now, the question, Bill, will be whether he's on the right side of public opinion, because uh, there is there is inevitably going to be um, uh, a battle between uh, uh, Doug Ford here in Ontario uh, and the Prime Minister on his national carbon pricing plan. Uh, there's a there's a um, uh, an odds-on possibility that early in 2019, Jason Kenney, uh, who is aligned with uh, uh, Ford uh, on the carbon pricing question, gets elected in Alberta. So at very least, you're going to have some very acrimonious provincial uh, federal relations. And, and, and Trudeau, you know, he came into power in 2015, promising a new way of dealing with the provinces after Harper uh, refused to have these first ministers conferences and. And for a while, all was fine. It's not going to be fine in 2019. Now, the conservatives and the commons, you probably know, have been going day after day after day on the carbon price cover-up, trying to push the liberals on what this will cost consumers. Mm-hmm. But I don't see it getting any traction. What I think will give it some traction is when Doug Ford and possibly Jason Kenney uh, bring it onto the national um, scene. Uh, I think we're going to have a, a quite a, a pitch debate about climate change and, and carbon pricing going forward in the uh, in the fall of eighteen and, and stretching into two thousand nineteen. But that's good that's, news for Sheer, isn't it? I mean, I if, if it Doug is, Ford is going to carry the weight on this, when Sheer can go along for the ride and just peck Doug at him Ford, at a question period. Yeah, sure. Doug Ford's got the the, the bullhorn that uh, Sheer doesn't seem to have on this issue right now because they're, they're you know it, it hasn't really broken into the public consciousness at this point, but it, it will be because it will be a big issue. Here in Ontario, uh, and and uh, it will become a big issue in Alberta and uh, well, and Saskatchewan and Manitoba. So you know you're uh, you've got uh, four provinces aligned uh, against this policy. Uh, you know I still think Trudeau will be on the right side of this. You know we, you've got to look at um, you know overall the uh, progressive vote in the country still uh, outstrips the uh, um, the conservative vote and, and the, the progressive vote in this country uh, wants some kind of action on uh, on climate change. And Trudeau will win the day. The federal government will win the day. But in the meantime, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage um, to liberals uh, uh, because the whole question will come down to, well, you know, what's this going to cost me? Uh, there's going to be far more scrutiny placed on, on this question. And, and yeah, I think that helps Andrew Shearer. 
Well, especially from a, a strategic standpoint, I mean, if Doug Ford is, is as boisterous about this as he says he's going to be, uh, that opens up a second front that Trudeau's going to have to defend. Uh, well, Shear's there in Ottawa. Uh, he's going to have to deal with, uh, with this guy who's, you know, let's face it, making headlines, and he's got that populist ring to it. Uh, and that's that's going to take away a suck a lot of the energy, I would think, out of out of what the liberals are going to be trying to do in Ottawa. Um, yes, uh, unless Trudeau uh, very aggressively asserts that he's on the uh, side of angels on this and and, and makes makes the case um, to Canadians. You know, the, the he's not only going to win at court. He's uh, this policy also means that any. Any money uh, raised through a, a carbon tax is going to go right back to Ontario consumers. So, you know, whether Doug Ford likes it or not, there is going to be um, carbon pricing in Ontario. The question is how much noise can he make uh, about it in the interim and whether, uh, you know, he starts holding the majority view in this country. I don't believe he does now, but I think we're going to, we've got a, quite a year coming up where, uh, Public opinion could very well change on uh, climate pricing, well, and that's that's one of the arrows that obviously the, the the liberals have in their quiver right now is to is to simply counteract Ford and simply say, look at you know, we wanted to give you this, and he's not he's you know he's blocking it. I mean, we're trying to be fair to you guys, and and he's the guy that's holding this thing up here, Ontario voters. Uh, you know, we're we're on the right side of this, and so are you. And not, Doug Ford's on the wrong side of it. That that's probably the characterization I think they're going to come up with. Yeah, and not only that, don't, you have to keep in mind that withdrawing from this cap-and-trade program uh, is not as simple as just pulling the plug on it. There are uh, industries uh, that have uh, invested in this, and there will be lawsuits. They'll want their money back. It's, it's going to take longer, and it's going to be a little messier than, um, than Doug Ford uh, portrayed it on the, on the campaign uh, uh, trail, but I think you can pretty well say that about anything that he uh, pledged on the campaign trail because, you know, it's not bumper sticker time anymore. He's, he's got to actually deliver on these things, and, and life's a little bit more complicated uh, than uh, he would have you believe when he's out campaigning for the June election. Well, it's uh, into the silly season, I guess. As you mentioned, they're yeah. into their summer break. It's the barbecue thing. They all wear silly outfits of the Calgary Stampede and kind of <laughs> goes right. from there, doesn't Wait it? For it. Yeah. Wait for it, yep. Great piece in the start today. Tim, thanks as always for the time today. Great chatting with you, Bill. Thanks for calling. Take care. Tim Harper, of course, freelance writer and editor. Andrew Shear's show, Staying Power, even if voters don't know him yet. Check it out on the uh, Star webpage. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, we had a, a rather robust discussion about uh, Main Street, uh, downtown Hamilton, and the possibility of turning that into a two-way street. Uh, city staff uh, have uh, come up with a report. Actually, council's been waiting for this for quite some time. Uh, and uh, they're not sure. I mean, they, they say right now the staff are not recommending this. They're saying uh, the Main Street conversion is not realistic for the foreseeable future. That was the phrase that uh, I pulled out of the uh, the report on this. But uh, there's still a lot of discussion about conversions on many of the other streets that are on this list. Now, this is one of these issues that, that just really grabs people. I mean, they're either very, very much in favor of it or very, very much opposed to it. Nobody seems to have any middle ground on this. But council's going to have to make some decisions on this. Chad Collins, the uh, city councilor for Ward 5, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Chad. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill. Yourself? Good. This has been going on for a long, long time. And I, I know everybody references the, uh, the the two-way conversions on James and John. Uh, that was supposed to be the beginning of a steady stream of these things. It seems to have slowed down, first of all. What, what's going on? Why the delays? 
Yeah, and I, I, you, you're right. I missed your discussion yesterday, but I, um, you know, it's always a contentious issue when we start talking about the conversion of one-way to two-way streets and uh, change just in general, um, whether it's related to traffic or otherwise, uh, you know, can cause <laughs> tremendous discussions in the community and in neighbourhoods. And the two-way street conversions is uh, certainly no exception. Well, sure, because uh, some people take the, the philosophical view that, you know, you shouldn't have highways, as they like to call them, uh, in, the, in the middle of the city, and people drive too fast, and there are too many big trucks there. And uh, the other side is, I mean, we still have to get from point A to point B. Yes, oh, no, no doubt. And there are implications, right? Every, and, and you know from just making changes in a neighborhood when you were on council, there's a ripple effect. So people will ask, well, I want you to make changes on my own street. And when you make those changes, sometimes um, there's there's an impact on corresponding streets. You may be diverting traffic to another street that hasn't seen those numbers before. And so whenever we're dealing with traffic changes, um, you know, and safety is always paramount. Certainly the, the, everything's done in the context of a budget. But from an operational perspective, we usually turn to our traffic engineers and experts to say, when we make these changes or if we consider these changes, what can we expect to see as a result, not just on this street, but some of the adjacent streets within the neighborhood or in a broader context um, across the city? Because when you're dealing with Main Street or some of the escarpment crossings or even some of the uh, local highways, uh, whether it's the Link or the Red Hill, um, you know, you, you, you'll start to see that ripple effect in, in areas surrounding it. So back to your original question in terms of two-way streets, um, it, it was back in the forefront, I think, after the downtown master plan was presented to us in 2007 and 2008. And at that point, that's when it was it, it really gained some traction in terms of staff had come out and said, here's a list of, of streets specifically in the downtown that, that need to be converted or we recommend uh, converted to, uh, to two-way. And, uh, and that list, I think, included, if memory serves me right, uh, Houston, Hats, King William, uh, Rebecca, York, and uh, but they at the, they took the same position then that they do now with uh, with Main Street, and uh, and so that discussion that claim was approved, and of course those um, recommendations to do those con- conversions were had a little asterisk there that said that we meet with the appropriate business uh, and uh, businesses in the area that the neighborhood be consulted with, and uh, several years passed. Uh, I think it was uh, either Councillor McCaddy or Councillor Farr that put up their hand at one one of our meetings and said, you know, what's the status of two ways? Because I'm getting calls from residents. And uh, staff said, well, we, you know, we recommended those changes, but there's nothing in the budget that would help council facilitate those changes. And so that um, necessitated the creation of a committee. And uh, I believe it was Councillor Morelli, McCaddy and Farr who were charged with the responsibility of coming back with a funding plan. That plan was subsequently uh, presented to council. And it was approved. And so we've slowly but surely made our way through um, many of those streets. And, and since that term of council, um, just over the last five years, uh, and, and I don't represent the area, but if off the top of my head, I know that we've made, um, you know, we've, we've made those, we've been progressed with Rebecca, with Bold, with Duke. Um, Wentworth, I believe, has uh, now converted Houston, King William. We've made some changes. I know that John Street Bill in particular, when Councillor Farr had his meeting with uh, the community, um, there was some some opposition within the neighborhood and, and residents who lived specifically on John. So they were looking at a bike lane rather than the conversion. So that one was, was put on hold. Is that and, what they've uh, done on Bay Street now, too? Because obviously the bike lane is there. Uh, and that was one of the first ones that they were talking about doing, of course, uh, and, and that's yet to happen. Is, is yeah. it because there's a lot of pushback? I think there's still community conversation there, absolutely. And, and there's still some um, that are on the books for 219. And so Victoria... Uh, Caroline, I think Park, 
Birch and Hess are scheduled for 219. So after 219, um, maybe saving except for John and one other street, there really Main Street then becomes the only one that w- would be left. So by by I think the first or second year of next term, we will have seen the conversion of all of those that were recommended in the 2007-2008 downtown transportation master plan. And of course, that doesn't include though the escarpment crossings. Although I, I believe the Claremont was part of the report that we just looked at, and it talked about considering Claremont two up, two down, with one lane for pedestrians and cyclists. And that'll be a discussion that council um, has, you know, that we'll have, we'll have to go through that discussion because there's there'll be implications there for peak morning and um, afternoon rush hours, very similar to what we're dealing with with the MTO and, and Main Street, and, and not too dissimilar from our discussions about expanding the link. Um, you know, we want to expand the link to uh, three lanes in each direction, and the 403 congestion is preventing us from doing that. And so until the 403 um, see some relief, we, we certainly can't bottleneck everyone um, we can't compound that issue of bottlenecking on the link. So yeah, and that's one of the other issues. I know you've also petitioned the province to to expand the four hundred three to go, yes. to, and and that's something that the province has to respond. Exactly. So so as you know, back to your original question in terms of the conversions, we're, we're almost there. And um, with those last ones in two nineteen and probably one or two in two twenty, it'll that the last one remaining will be uh, Main Street. Of course, there's still a, a one way element on King, but if uh, the the LRT goes through that one's now uh, spoken for in terms of its design and configuration, and and that Main Street one, as staff was very clear uh, when they were questioned, it, it requires further study, and it's not just um, the 403 issue that's holding that one up. Um, you know, the, it talked about separating Main Street and there possibly being an an opportunity to convert east of Wellington Street all the way down to the Delta. And staff are still unclear in terms of what the implications would be. I talked about that ripple effect earlier. You know, if, if, if in fact that was converted to two-way, there would be implications on many of the other east-west corridors, as well as, um, you know, how the, the street would interface with businesses. We always look at land use planning. Of course, EMS is always uh, um, a discussion when we start talking about these, these issues, especially when we make changes around the hospital. So the, those, those discussions need to happen at a later date, but... Uh, I think we're we're making progress, and that's all in the context of our downtown councillors and those that living in the vicinity. Especially, I, I know the councillors Green, uh, Far, and um, and Johnson, and of course McCaddy and Morelli before them um, have had extensive community consultation with the residents. We're we're never going to get unanimity on this issue, um, but I, I think it we've had a healthy conversation, and that big stumbling block of funding was resolved and. And we're there. But let's talk about the impacts. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the things when the city started doing these conversions a long time ago, Chad, that, that maybe maybe staff and maybe even the council of the day weren't really ready to, to, to handle because they weren't thinking about that. But every you're absolutely right. I mean, this is you know, a law of physics. Every time you make a change, there's going to be an impact someplace else. Uh, and even when, you know, you did what they call a road diet now, that's the phrase they're using on King Street there right by the International Village, yep. uh, we noticed all of a sudden there's a lot more traffic on Hunter Street. In other words, people were saying, I'm not going to get stuck on that. I'm going up to Hunter and I'm going to go across town that way. And those residents were saying, hey, you know, we got all this extra traffic here. What are you guys doing to us? Mm-hmm. So th- there are always unintended consequences to every one of these. There are, and, and that's why, you know, there's, I know that, you know, people say, oh, geez, you're studying these things to death. But once you, do, once you make the conversion, it's pretty hard to go back. And, um, you know, we've seen that with bike lanes and bus lanes and other things where we've, you know, there have been pilots or experiments 
and we, we undertake those, those studies and sometimes pilots uh, to fully understand what the implications are. But once you go to a two-way conversion, um, it, it, it's certainly hard to, to pilot and experiment with that because it means it's not just lines on the road. It, it oftentimes means changing the signals at the intersections. It means um, oftentimes in, implementing new signals. It means, um, you know, curb changes. It means doing corner cuts. And so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of resources that are put into making these conversions work. So studying them, and some of them have been studied more than once, and, and Main Street, the prime example of that, is an important part of that process. And I know it can be frustrating for community advocates and stakeholders who say, I want it to happen tomorrow, or this should have happened yesterday, or, you know, this is all in the name of safety. Uh, safety is certainly of paramount importance, but there's, there are other issues that, you know, need to be addressed as it relates to goods movement, as it relates to, you know, if, if you're making these conversions, is it is it now a truck, Is it can it be sustained or, or maintained as a truck route? Um, how are pedestrians affected? How, uh, how is cycling affected? And, of course, EMS. EMS is always a part of that conversation. And, uh, you know, we turn to them almost first to say, if we're making these changes, um, you know, is there an appreciable difference as it relates to you responding to an emergency call? And, or, that's, and that's one of the issues that, yeah. that, that why I think Main Street keeps coming back into the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of people, I don't know if you've heard about this yet, Chad, but a lot of people concerned about the LRT construction. Uh, yep. Being facetious, of course. Yep. Uh, that not just during the construction, yep. but even upon completion, as you say, one way, one uh, eastbound, one way westbound on King Street. Yep. Uh, how emergency vehicles going to get by there? Or, or, or where's the alternate route? And some are saying, well, then you're going to have to convert Main Street. Yep. But but there are some huge logistical problems, as your staff report pointed out, especially mm-hmm. down by Dundurn, because you got those ramps off the 403, and and you can't accommodate two way traffic there. That's right. And so when we make these changes, we want to make sure that um, that they're going to function as planned. And, um, and again, back to the community consultation and, and conversations, um, we're certainly open to those comments in terms of people pressing the city to make changes. Uh, but I, and I've seen some of the op-ed pieces that say, you know, it should have been done 10, 20 years ago. And, and I can appreciate, you know, that some people are anxious. But, um, you know, there, there are, these are technical issues, and we turn to experts oftentimes. They're not off-the-cuff decisions that are just made uh, because we want them to happen or in a perfect world, wouldn't it be nice if? Um, you know, the, there's traffic engineers, professionals who help us with it, and, and there are EMS and um, staff who assist. And it's it's really, um, you know, it's across the board. There's there's many many divisions and departments that are a part of these conversations beyond traffic and traffic engineering. And so I I, I certainly you know take um, uh, I certainly understand that there are people who again who wanted to happen yesterday, but it it oftentimes. You know, it takes a bit to understand what the implications are, and then of course there's the, there's the funding issue, and um, and budgets are always an issue, and that's what delayed these these um, uh, projects in the first place. Thankfully, we had the red light camera that I think has assisted with some of these. So the the revenues generated from that account have assisted with the conversions. Area rating uh, accounts have been used, I know, extensively by Councillor Farr, and I believe Councillor Green has used it as well. So we've kind of piecemealed the funding together and have accelerated some of these conversions because new funds have been made available that didn't exist five, ten years ago. How much uh, of an impact is the construction of LRT going to have on, on this program itself? Or is there any intention uh, by some councillors to hold off on this until we see just what's going to happen when they start digging? 
in terms of the outstanding two ways bill. Yeah, yeah. Because no, as you say, there's going to be an impact in, in surrounding streets and neighborhoods if you start the, the conversions. And there's certainly going to be uh, a pushback uh, from a traffic standpoint when you start the construction. People that are used to driving on King Street are going to start looking for something else to go on. Yeah, and I think um, I, I don't recall Cannon being on that list. And so I, I don't, so maybe, yeah, maybe Cannon, if there was ever a discussion about two, and I don't recall it now because of the bike lane and it's, and it's you know, it's permanent. Um, I, I don't think there are opportunities on Cannon, so Cannon would stay one way. Most of those lists that I rhymed off earlier, I believe, are north so, north south um, corridors. So I yeah, yeah, Catherine, Sanford, Burt, Sherman, Victoria, Wellington. Yeah, they're, 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 yeah, those that are in the east west direction, I think, have either already been accomplished or, or in the case of Cannon, just really aren't even an option. So I, I would I don't think anything would be delayed. Again, most of these that are outstanding are going to occur in 219. Uh, again, as long as the community in the area and the neighbourhood is still supportive, I, I think whoever represents those wards as part of the new council will probably check in with those residents again just before construction starts or those conversions take place. And uh, But I don't see anything being delayed by LRT, but uh, of course we're, you know, there's still lots of outstanding questions in terms of we, we've had delegations from the Aberdeen area come in to say we're concerned about traffic today. And we know that LRT is going to have a tremendous impact on that area of the city in terms of people looking for alternate routes because of construction. Um, and so those those issues aren't going to go away. And um, and so, you know, to your question of in, impacts of LRT and LRT construction, if the project happens, uh, th- there's there's going to be a lot of discussion about what those alternative routes look like and, um, and then how the councillors who represent those areas uh, deal with traffic congestion on streets that uh, maybe haven't experienced th- that level of traffic in the past. Is there one street that jumps out at you right now that says this one's got to get done, ASAP? In, in terms of repaving? or No, I'm or, talking or, about or the two, the conversions. Um, I think most of those that, um, I think the highest priority ones have been done. Um, I think John, I mean, John goes through a residential community and it was part of the North End uh, traffic plan that we, part of the West Harbor study. So many of these pro, pro, many of these plans overlap each other. We had the North End Traffic Management Plan, with the Downtown Transportation Master Plan. We have a regular just transportation master plan across the city. So many of these overlap. And um, I think Councillor Farr and Councillor um, McCaddy um, prioritized the, their own projects within their wards and have gone ahead with those that had the most community support. And of course, where they had the funding to accommodate the, that support. Um, but no, I, I don't think anything th- stands out right now. I think that looming question in the elephant in the room bill is is still what's the status of, of Main Street. And with the way that the, you know, I, I know that people can be critical in terms of the pace that the city works with some of these projects. We're dealing with the MTO. And so we're probably, you know, I, if I had to guess, we're probably a decade away from trying to figure out what happens on Main Street because much of it will rely on what the ministry does on the 403, which will take years and years to resolve, not just from a planning perspective, but just from, from a, to, get, to get to the province, to get the construction dollars in their own budget will take quite some time. Well, and you've got some challenges coming up, and I know that this makes some people feel uncomfortable, but we need to talk about economic realities. Uh, you know, when, when Mr. Ford, for instance, drops the price of gasoline, which is a great thing for consumers, you drive, I drive, that's, that's a great idea. 
Yeah. But that lends, that, that, that's going to be less gas tax money, which is meaning less money coming to the cities as a result of this. We don't know how much of an impact it's going to have, but uh, you've got that challenge in front of you right now. And, and of course, you've already as talked about an infrastructure deficit, and it just may only mm-hmm. exacerbate that problem. So this, uh, this I, I know there's an election coming up in a few months, but boy, the next budget uh, that you guys do in the spring is going to be very challenging because of all of these things. It will be, and and uh, you know we've we've been very successful this term in terms of having I, I think second lowest in the province every single year of our of our mandate, and um, so we're we're proud of that. But you're right, there it, there may be some storm clouds on the horizon as it relates to budgets. Um, you know we haven't seen much yet from the federal government, but they're going through their election uh, a year after the city's election, and of course you know traditionally the year or two before an election at the province or the feds, they start making funding announcements. So we're hopeful to see something from them. But uh, in terms of the province, it's a, it's one big question mark. There were a lot of promises made during the election, uh, you know, whether it's related to infrastructure, whether it was related to promises of not making cuts in certain areas. Um, I have a sinking suspicion that they'll probably move ahead with um, a public-private model on marijuana to try to generate some, some new revenues, and, you know, we'll see what happens, what happens there. Uh, but in terms of what's in store for municipalities, it's, I think the only person that knows at this point in time is uh, our new premier, Mr. Ford. Well, I guess uh, your job is to just keep your head down and keep plowing away at this and, and see what happens. A quick uh, tweet from uh, Don uh, at CHML. Bill Kelly says, Queen Street and Hess Street have to uh, stop being ignored. Those, Yeah, I, I, I totally disagree or agree with him on that one, Chad. The Queen Street mm-hmm. seems to me to be a no-brainer, and, and Hess Street for the same reason. Yeah, Queen is in the design. I know design fund, funds were set aside for that. So in terms of it, the timing of construction... I, I don't know, but I think the ward councillors are working with their neighbors. And um, sorry, the other one, Bill. Hess. 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 Hess is scheduled for 219. There you go. Understand. All right. Chad, thanks for the update on this. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Chad Collins, of course, the uh, councillor for Ward 5. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.